Welcome to the Satiated Podcast, where we explore physical and emotional hunger, satiation, and healing your relationship with your food and body. I'm your host, Stephanie Mara Fox, your somatic nutritional counselor. I'm super excited to introduce you all today to Livia Shapiro. Livia is a mama, mover, writer, therapist, and longtime yoga teacher. Her radical and revealing voice helps people find their own growing edges with candor and grace in equal measure. She's the author of the Somatic Therapy Workbook, which is a practical guide for clinicians and the layperson alike to access the teachings and methods of somatic psychology and movement-based healing. I have known Livia for over a decade, and I'm continuously inspired by her presence and authenticity in the world. Welcome, Livia. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just thrilled to reconnect with you right now today. And, you know, I I would love to get started with just hearing a little bit more about your background and how you got into somatic work and, you know, your ebb and flow relationship with food that landed you here. I mean, I've always had a relationship with movement. I grew up dancing. I was a competitive figure skater for most of my later childhood and teens and into college. And I started practicing yoga when I was 16. And at almost 39, it's still my predominant practice in my life. And I also practice various forms of ecstatic dance. But if I had to pinpoint like a practice that I study, it's called the five rhythms, which is uh, a well-known format, if you will. And so I've always been a mover and I think the it became very striking to me the ways that I lived outside my body kind of became less ignorant to that. I think in my I don't know, I bet if I bet I, I always sort of knew it, but I didn't have language for it. And I think when I had a I had a relatively I would say my eating disorder was I would put it in the category on the spectrum of moderately severe. And I think that was a very weird hell-bent attempt at how do I manage living in a body that I don't know if I really want to be in and so I think that was a big part of that process and Mm -hmm. in terms of like somatic psychology and becoming a somatic therapist I mean I was always a I started teaching yoga when I was 19 so and I've always usually kept teaching yoga through all these years has ebbed and flowed but I ended up at Naropa for a degree in somatic therapy because I wanted to be a really good yoga teacher. I didn't set out to be a somatic therapist. I set out because I thought, well, shit, like I'm teaching all these poses, but nobody knows how to teach people. Like we don't actually know how to teach to the stuff that's coming up out of practice. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really illuminated that for me at the time was I was teaching yoga to folks in an outpatient eating disorders clinic and their symptoms got worse. And I was like, what the, but the reality is like that happened to me too. Mm -hmm. Had happened to some years before. And I didn't really understand why the movement was both so supportive, but also deeply provocative. And there wasn't enough skill set to bridge that. 
I felt in, in the yoga industry at the time. I think mm-hmm. it's really changed. I mean, what we're talking about in yoga in terms of the nervous system, polyvagal theory, trauma, all that. A decade ago, it was nascent how we were doing that. Yeah. Yeah. After that realization, what connections did you find that movement actually sometimes makes your relationship with food and body worse at first? I don't know if I would say that it makes it worse so much as it makes, it shows you what's actually happening. Mm, mm, Yeah. The symptoms appear worse, but the symptoms were always there. It's just the move in my, that's my, in my opinion, we're talking the level of, yeah, sure. The symptoms are more um, active. So we might say that they're getting worse, but I don't know if I would say it made the, the eating disorder worse so much as it just showed me what was really there. Uh, and I think that's what I saw with these women in this program. A movement that has a component of overt psycho-spiritual inquiry, like when you are turning in, when you are starting to track what it feels like as you are a mover, you can't not tug on these other parts. I mean, our brains aren't wired to function any differently. Like our memories, our emotions are all wound up in our movement patterns. I mean, we know this from school. So school as in Naropa, I don't mean school yes, like si- Side note, and, both yeah. Livia and I went yeah. to Naropa University to get our master's degree yeah. in somatic psychotherapy. Yeah. So, you know, the way that our brains are, are wired like that in terms of how our memories, our emotions are in, intermingled with our movement patterns, right? You can't tug on the one string without ha- having the other, which makes it a perfect modality for healing, but it also creates the occupational hazard of it's going to reveal your shit to you. And then what do you do? So get your lifeboat ready, right? Like you got to start working on the skills. Yeah. I really appreciate that reframe of not necessarily that your behaviors get worse, but you can't be unaware of what you will become aware of as you start to get back inside of your body. Yeah, it's like, it makes me think of like, a, you know, I'm divorced, but it made me think of like, when I first realized all of the infidelity that had happened in my marriage, I could say, oh, well, finding that out made my marriage worse. It, it did it. It was always bad. I just didn't know what the thing was. And then mm-hmm. I found out and then it's like, so, you know, these things more about like, what's actually lurking under the surface. These movement practices are so revealing and clarifying right? Then we start to really see what's in the the lake of our being. Yeah. So what have you personally found supportive that as someone starts to maybe practice embodiment practices, dancing, yoga, movement, and that all of that intensity starts coming up, what have you found been supportive to start to flow with that intensity, maybe with a little bit more ease? You know, part of me, Stephanie, doesn't know fully like part of it the the real answer is just like time and Mm. fucking up and trying again and falling down and getting back up and every day trying to cultivate some level of self-talk that is mm, loving which finally now at you know moving towards 40 I think I have a handle on like some of the practical skills that helped me were trying to create space between my impulses and my behaviors and starting to really understand that every impulse I had around food, I could slow it down 
to check out how I wanted to engage with that impulse. And I think I did learn that directly from movement practices. And I was in, you know, I had the lovely uh, sort of both sides of the spectrum. I had fell onto the anorexic spectrum. I'd fallen into binge eating and binge purge cycles before. So I had to both learn to deeply nourish and be full. And then also how to manage this like extreme reactivity and impulsivity. So there was a both there for me. And I think with movement practices, we have the opportunity to really allow ourselves to be, and this is why I love dance practices, like free form ecstatic dance practices and like the five rhythms, because we are really just tracking impulse and following our impulse. And it's like, you can be really big, you can be really small, you can be voracious, you can be whatever you need to be. And there's this safe place to like, let that, you like those that you know that like wild animal inside of you just like be out there you know and i think there's a time and place that we really need to have that and for whatever reason some of us are taking that out in our relationship to food and some of us are taking that out in a relationship to booze or you know pick your poison there right mm-hmm. so all of that was really about like taking space between impulses and just 15 breaths or like one of the very practical tools that worked for me was getting in the shower. And this, this is like just nuts and bolts. Like when I, I got to a point, this was years and years ago, but I got to a point where when I would feel the urge to, there was like a, a binge perch impulse that would come up, I would just take a shower and just like be in the hot water and just be there until it would pass. And then when I got out, I could usually like manage something much more like actually sit down and make like a reasonable meal, but just to create some space for myself around those impulses. And then on the other side, in terms of like nourishing and not falling into that sort of demise of like, I'm going to get super tight and rigid and controlling. I think that for me was a lot about finding where I felt safe. I think I managed a lot of control in the, as I'm talking to you and really reflecting on it, I think the anorexia was a lot about feeling unsafe and how do I control? And that's how I took control. And so cultivating every way that I felt safe. So again, like somatic, like yoga makes me feel safe. You know, here's the boundaries, here's the rules, here's a practice like a long-standing practice that has been there for me longer than any relationship I've ever had other than my relationship with myself and my parents. So that's something, you know, and the felt sense of like what deep openness and safety actually is in my body, like actually contacting and then living from that place, right? So that I don't have to be so rigid in these other spaces. And then I think the binge purge was about, it was less about safety and and control and more about like a, can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? Which sure is about safety, but it was more about like, do you love me? Am I loved? Am I valuable? Am I the, and so creating a lot of space around that to then come back to myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I so appreciate just the the realness and all that, and that this healing process is messy. There's no like definitive answer of like, okay, so you're dealing, you're dealing with this in your relationship with food. This is what you got to do. Like, I remember when I was trying to 
create that similar space between wanting like kind of engaging in a binge was I would literally walk out my door. I would just be like, I cannot even be in my apartment right now. I just had to get out the door and would literally walk around my neighborhood for as long as I needed to. And then when I felt ready to come back, I would return back home and something would have shifted and changed. And yeah, I agree. Just creating that space where, yes, the intensity of the urge is going to be there to engage in the behavior. But if you can do something in that space that feels regulating and soothing and calming and just kind of observe how it shifts and change in it, it does decrease with time. And tolerating that discomfort. Yeah. One of the sayings that I love is all our thoughts are real. They're just not all true. So I'd be like, real thought, not true thought. (laughs) Real thought, not true thought. Yeah. Real, but not true. So that helped me a lot. I mean, I think the food addiction, whether it's anorexia, bulimia, exercise, anorexia, all of the ones that fall under ED, they, you know, they fall under that umbrella of process addictions, like, uh, so like food addiction, sex addiction, gambling, these are process addictions. I mean, you could wager there are parts of the food process, right? And you know this more than I do. We're talking about like sugar and I guess they're in caffeine. Like there is a way that we can get more chemically absorbed, right? In those substances. But I tend to think those process addictions are, they're emotional addiction and Gambling, you could put that aside, but like you can't live without food and you can't live without sex. I mean, you can, but that wouldn't be very enjoyable for most people. And I don't even like using that term around, I don't like these terms, food addiction and sex addiction, because they're so deeply rooted in what we need to be happy in this life you know, and we have different satiation measures, right? Like some people have, are more hungry than others, period. Some people have a hungrier sex drive than others, period. And all of that is on this big spectrum, I think is okay. But we have to start to attune to like, what's our natural state and how hungry are we for what, when, where, and why? Like, what is the thing that we're, we're looking for and craving and satisfying? And, and so I don't like those even those really those terms of things that are so innately good about us, like food is good, you know, sex is good. We should have that in our life in full measure. And how do we develop a relationship to it? We're like, be fucking hungry, go for it. Don't not have it. Yeah. I really agree with that. You know, just, I feel like we've created these labels to things to pathologize something that actually is something that's really like quote unquote healthy and supports us in thriving as human beings and that it's a response to something like your food and body behaviors are a response to something, not the problem itself. Yeah. That's why I say like, it's actually an emotional addiction. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not the food. It's not the sex. It's not the money. It's actually an emotional addiction. Yeah. And so like, what is it that we're really getting after? Do we have multiple avenues for, regulation, right? Like that's another piece with it. I think too, is if we only have a very uh, limited amount of choices to soothe ourselves, well, if those choices aren't available or your shit out of luck, having a full spectrum life where we can, we're talking about self-regulation and co-regulation 
and support of nature, like sometimes food is regulating. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing that's, I think is tricky. Right. And same thing with like intimacy and sex and things like that. Right. Like sometimes like that is just the medicine you need. That is the regulating thing. So what's the emotional piece that's, that's under it. Right. Yeah. Whole thing with food and diet culture and, you know, like that's, I think far away from the, the, the thing that's actually going on. Yeah. These are really excellent points that I like to normalize. Never take food off of your list of regulating acts. It has to stay on there. It has to be one of them because as soon as you take it off, one is going to be the only one you want to choose. And two, you're going to feel a lot of shame and judgment when you do want to choose that as one of your many choices. And if you've taken it off, then there's this kind of like shame cycle that gets set up of, oh, why is that the thing that I chose? Where sometimes if we just say that's one of your many choices, it's allowed to be, it gets to be, you know, then there's just a lot of acceptance and ownership when you just choose, okay, I'm choosing food to satiate an emotional hunger. That's okay. I'm doing it and I can just move on with my life now. And, you know, like for me, another big part of the process for me has been like, I love food. I grew up in a food family. Like my, my family was in the food business and my family is deeply oriented around food. And it's interesting now, like my life is deeply oriented around food, growing food. Where do I source my food? Like what farmer did I talk to cooking it for people that I love, bringing it to people that I love sharing it. Like there's a deep, deep nourishment that I have created, like this thing that was very like tenuous in my life, this thing that was very triggering, this thing that was very confusing, this thing and place where I took out all of my stuff. I actually, and I feel very proud of it, quite frankly, in my life. I've really turned it into this thing that is whatever the opposite of shame is, is like that is my relationship to food now, like a deep, harmonious peace around it. And like, don't get me wrong, a woman living in a culture that tells me I should be many different things. So like, I still sometimes I'm like, oh, well, no, and this should be different. And that should be different. Blah, blah, blah. But like, that's not the dominant way I feel. And I think also raising a young girl in the world, you know, I don't want things to be off limits for her. I want there to be this deep reverence for nourishment and for food and cultivating a home life that is sweet around the relationship to food. Yeah. It's not a weapon to be used against us, that it is the Mm -hmm. pathway for connection. And I think that was like probably the biggest change for me is that I actually, my relationship to food, I utilized as a weapon against myself for a long time. And then Along the way, I took that sword, that knife, that weapon, however you want to say it. And it's like, I really just laid it down and transformed it into something much more life-giving. And you mentioned before we started this call today that stepping into motherhood really kind of healed and changed your relationship with food. And I'd love to hear more about that transition for you, just because I know a, a lot of parents, you know, are here listening to this. And I think that the the process of stepping into being a parent can absolutely change your relationship with food when you're also like nourishing another little being in this world too. Yeah. So, 
you know, when I was pregnant, I, I hated being pregnant. I did not, I did not enjoy being pregnant. It, I had a, a difficult pregnancy in that I was one of those people who was basically sick for like seven months. So I had a new appreciation for what I could and couldn't eat. I mean, it basically ate like smush beans on toast and like some romaine lettuce for like seven months. It was horrible. So I had this sort of this hard stop of like what I could and couldn't eat. And it was like scary for me. And then at the very end of my pregnancy, you know, my, my tastes changed a lot. And like, I finally was frustrating because like, I was finally really hungry, but I also couldn't eat a lot at one time, which also brought up a lot for me because I really wanted to be able to like sit down and have a big meal. I didn't like that. I was like these little increments and like my taste buds kind of changed a bit. I wanted like really spicy food. And I also had food sensitivities that went away. Like my previous dairy sensitivity completely went away when I was pregnant, which was super fun. So I think I just developed this thing of like, there were so many ways in which I couldn't do a lot that I was just like, it. like I just like, is there anything that like I can eat that feels good? And then when, after my daughter was born, I had this like voracious hunger that was like unstoppable really. And there was no room because of nursing between like, okay, I should probably eat soon. I may be getting a little hungry. Okay. I should like, you know, move towards making dinner. It was like all of a sudden I would be like, I wasn't hungry before. And then all of a sudden it was like, if you didn't put a burger in front of me, I was going to just rip your head off. Like I would, I would, I would be shaking. Like I had a lot of blood sugar stuff going on and hormonal stuff going on. And, you know, I was nurse. I nursed my daughter till she was two and nine months and I had massive like thyroid and hormonal changes. And so like, even at night, I mean, I would be like drenched in sweat. I would wake up feeling like I had run literally was like in a pool of sweat. This was for months. And I would wake up so hungry as if I had ran a marathon, like, oh my God. And so I got to like, there was this way in which I did not give a fuck about what I was eating so much in terms of like food sense. And like, I didn't eat dairy and I didn't eat soy and I didn't eat gluten and all these things. So, and then I also had a lot of issues with breastfeeding with like clogged, like inflammation and clogged ducts. So then I had to do like a very low inflammatory diet to support that. Otherwise I would get like so much pain. So mm-hmm. I had to really be like, I cannot, I literally cannot survive and feed this baby if I don't really manage this. So it became all about like a very deep relationship to like how healthy and nourished can I be for mm-hmm. me and for this human being. Mm-hmm. And then of course, you know, being a mom. So that kind of flushed out any of the sort of last remnants that I carried, I like to put myself in the category of having been well on the healing path in that world of ED, that sort of maddening world for years before I got pregnant, but in a very earnest way. But I think these sort of like shadowy vestiges, like the deep hiding places really got flushed out in that postpartum time for me which was like a delight. It was like, I was so grateful that that was being like moved. And the, and the other really big thing, Stephanie, that happened for me is that I just stopped caring. Like my life was so full and so busy and I was so needed by my daughter that I was like, my 
disordered eating, that neurosis is not interesting. It's not interesting. It's just not catching. It's not catching my attention. Doesn't feel worthwhile. That part of my neurotic self feels stale, uninteresting, and I don't want to give it any more attention. Not because I hate it, not because I just don't love it, but because it's boring. Like it just got boring to be in that identity. Honestly, I was just like, I'm done. I'm just like really done with being in that identity. And I'm saying it in kind of like a, like a really firm, almost harsh way now, but it's not coming from a harsh place. I mean it sincerely. Like I just was done. I just was really bored with myself. And I was like, there's gotta be so much more. And there's more I could say about that and like the evolution of where I'm at now too. And like, there's this whole piece that I discovered more recently around food sensitivities and being in unsafe relational spaces. And now that I'm not in those spaces, oh, well, lo and behold, I don't have those sensitivities anymore. So that's interesting. Yeah. But there is definitely this combination of like deeply needing to be well and nourished and, and this combination of like that neurotic part is so boring now. Yeah. I really hear you pointing out that sometimes it is about the food and sometimes it really, really, really isn't. Mm-hmm. And that it's about the the state and the place that we are in our life. And that if we feel safe and thriving and in safe environment and with safe people, then our relationship with food is really going to change. And if we are not in those environments, that our relationship with food can kind of be information for, ooh, how am I processing these other areas of my life through how I'm relating with my body and how my body is able to digest different foods, but it's not necessarily about the food itself. Yeah. Yeah. And our bodies change over time too. Like I've definitely noticed that when I left my marriage, some of my food sensitivities started to shift significantly. The question that I ask, have been asking myself in the past like two years really is like, is that true now? It was true then. Is it true now? Hmm. And I'm also really interested in like, I think when I was younger, I had an intellectual understanding of pleasure and an intellectual understanding of power and an intellectual understanding of presence. I call them the three P's, presence, power, and pleasure. And now I have like an embodied sense of them. Of I want to live a life that is filled to the brim with pleasure, whether that's the relationships I'm in, the flowers I keep in my house, the food I cook or choose to eat, you know, and I'm not talking about like eating cream pie every day. It's a much more rich and and deeper, like intuitive place, but things that are just, that feel really good, that feel just right for the moment. To do that, we have to cultivate a lot of presence. And I think the somatic work, right, is cultivating our ability. So somatic work cultivates our ability to tolerate pleasure. A lot of people can't tolerate pleasure or that's the only thing they can tolerate right? They can't tolerate discomfort. So I think the somatic, and you're nodding a lot, like the somatic work definitely flushes out our capacity to be with pleasure and it refines it. And I think it definitely refines our presence in our body and relationally. And I think it makes us more powerful. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Like you said, I'm nodding my head a lot. First, I think that question of it was true then, but it's not true now. I think that that is such a powerful, or just asking yourself, is it true now? It's such a powerful question to pose to yourself because 
sometimes we're comparing ourselves to maybe our happiest times of the past, but that's not who we are now anymore. And what is maybe going to bring us joy or support us in thriving is going to be really, really different. And just bringing in, yeah, a lot of that curiosity. And I agree that sometimes our relationship with food is supporting us in the only place that we feel safe, feeling pleasure. And it's supporting ourselves and actually feeling kind of joyful and vibrant in other areas of our life. And other times, I, I completely agree that it's it's taking us away from discomfort. So you really kind of get to, for those who are listening, sit with yourself of, ooh, like, does it feel more comfortable to sit with discomfort or to sit with joy? And it's different for every single person because our relationship with food can support us either way. And I do want to kind of bring in a note of, I'm curious how your book and all the practices in there might support someone who's starting to adventure on this path. Yeah. Thanks for bringing it to that. All the practices in the book, it's not, I don't explicitly explain it this way, but since we're on this thread now, I think it feeds, you know, pun intended there, the ability to be with our relationship to pleasure, be with our relationship to power, be with presence. Like how do we cultivate presence, right? And presence as like the high road of of presence is embodiment. I'm fully in myself and I'm aware of myself as I'm doing myself and being myself and moving as myself and moving from self-consciousness to consciousness of self. And then the, the, the antithesis of presence and embodiment is dissociation, right? Splitting off, fragmenting out, being somewhere else, right? Not being aware of and living from that place of where the instinctual body meets the like self-aware body. So all the practices in there are about flushing out, deepening, supporting, cultivating, finding those places. And that looks like various movement practices. That looks like resourcing ourselves from traumatic spaces. It looks like how to have difficult conversations with people and stay in your body. It looks like moving through difficult emotions of any kind, literally physically in our body. It looks like some movement repatterning, like early develop developmental patterns. So the book really traverses all of that. Yeah. I love just the arc that you're presenting both within what you've shared about your journey and within the book that this is a journey. You know, it's not a, okay, I'm going to heal my relationship with food and then I'm going to be done with that. You know, I think that there are, and I experienced this on my own healing path as well in my relationship with food, that there's a lot of layers where it's like, okay, you heal your relationship maybe with the actual food piece and you're eating consistently again. And all of that is great. But then there's this next layer of, oh, why did that come in to begin with? And then you have to address that layer. And then there's a layer underneath that. And so I really hear just for you in all of the transitions in your life, there was just layer by layer of healing. And that kind of your your book goes through that as well. Because even, you know, you might get curious of, well, how is having smooth conversations have anything to do with my relationship with food? Well, you know, sometimes we're using food to stuff down our voice. And so, yeah, learning just the skill of how do I have tough conversations can also lend itself to healing your relationship with food as well, because then food doesn't have to come in to navigate that discomfort. Yeah, we can show up like less armored or something 
Yeah. Well, I so appreciate you sharing all of your wisdom today. And I would love for you to share of how listeners can find you, keep in touch with you and your offerings in the world. Sure. Well, the book, the Somatic Therapy Workbook is available in all bookstores. You know, the local bookstores have it. And it's very available on Amazon. It's easy to get. And then I'm shamelessly available on the internet. People can find me on Instagram very easily. Just Livia Shapiro. And my website is ecstaticunfoldment.com. And there's ways to work with me privately and ways to attend movement classes. And then there's a, I do this really sweet book club style course with the workbook. I usually run it twice a year. So that's starting up uh, end of March, beginning of April. And it's a really sweet way to get involved in the work. We've run it a couple of times and it's been really, people seem to have really liked it and gotten a lot out of it. So that's up there. And those are really probably the main, the main spots. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll put all of these links in the show notes and yeah, I mean, healing happens in community. And so, you know, definitely check out Livia's work. And if you have any questions about anything that we explore today, you know, please reach out anytime. I will put both of our contacts in the show notes and thanks for tuning in this week and I'll touch base with you all again real soon. Bye.